Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Tomorrow is Indigenous Peoples Day in Canada. It's The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. And today we're going to discuss Indigenous people and change in the relationship with the Canadian government. We'll also talk about race, religious freedom, diversity, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia nationally. These are all issues that are definitely in need of discussion in Canada. And we have a great panel of guests to address this. Calvin Helene is the son of a British Columbia hereditary chief. He's an Indigenous lawyer. He's an author of great books, um, one you're very familiar with in his conversations on this program, Dances with Dependency. He's an entrepreneur and uh, was in British Columbia's top 40 under 40. Calvin, how are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for agreeing to do this. It's my great pleasure. Uh, is it okay to give my uh, my dad, the hereditary chief, uh, a shout out on Father's Day? Absolutely. Uh, also, I think as Canadians, we should all be uh, we should all be uh, uh, polling for Mackenzie Hughes, who may be the first Canadian to win the uh, U.S. Open sometime later today. That's a that's a good start, and happy Father's Day to all the dads, of course. Selena Caesar Chavan is African Canadian entrepreneur, former Whitby Ontario Liberal MP, and parliamentary secretary to Justin Trudeau before deciding to sit as an independent MP, following a confrontational meeting with Mr. Trudeau that Selena's talked to us about on this program. Uh, she's the author of Can You Hear Me Now? Selena, thanks for coming on on this. Thank you so much, Roy, for having. It's always a pleasure to be here. So thank you. Looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, me too. I, this is so important. Avi Benlolo, former president, CEO of the Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies and Human Rights activist as well. Hello, Avi. Hi, Roy. How are you? Great. It's, uh, happy Father's Day to all and uh, to everyone that's celebrating. It's really an honor and a pleasure to be here. Yes, sir. And Hussein Hamdani is a partner at Simpson Weigel Law Firm in Hamilton, Ontario, former member of the Hamilton Dialogue Committee made up of Muslims and Arabs and Jews and Christians. And they had uh, amazing discussions, some of them in this very studio with me. Uh, let me start, if I can, if I may, uh, with, with you, Calvin. You've written extensively about the indigenous experience in Canada. How, how would you summarize the indigenous experience and what must the rest of Canada understand about First Nations and engaging Indigenous people as full partners in the continuing development of Canada? Well, I think the, um, the first thing that, uh, that um, since we're talking about racism, or part of the discussion today is about racism, is to, uh, is to look at to where those, uh, where racist views come from. And in relation to indigenous people, we had uh, Europeans coming to North America. Uh, at the time they came, there's an estimate that there was maybe a quarter of the world's population throughout the Americas. We had established societies, some were incredibly sophisticated, um, continental trade networks. And um, some people showed up. And um, based on the dictates of the of the Catholic Church at that time, the papal bulls, um, if, if you arrived in somebody's uh, 
traditional territory, wherever it was in the Americas, um, as long as you planted a, a flag of your country there, informed your monarch um, that you had done so, it came back and created a small settlement, you, uh, the, you owned their land. And, um, and the basic assumption behind all of that is uh, if you weren't Christian, you, you weren't really people. And so deeply embedded in, in uh, a lot of um, European culture, and, and it, it's kind of a natural thing, I think, that most cultures think are, are ethnocentric. They think their culture is the best, and they're standing at the top of the hill looking down on everywhere else, on, on all other cultures, uh, to the point where, you know, even in the, uh, the 17th century, the English referred to... Um, to the Irish and the Scottish as savages. So when people came to this land, there was these incredible societies. And as a result of disease, what happened was 95% of our population was wiped out. Now you consider this in, in terms of COVID. COVID uh, in the worldwide about point zero 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 one two nine percent of people have died from it imagine what would happen if 95 percent of your your population died so when most um settlers came to the americas um they judged the indigenous people by the remains of the societies which were completely obliterated by disease and so the views that people have of indigenous people that are translated into racism today are views that um, that uh, they formed uh, from a completely one-sided uh, view of history and and from a, an ethnocentric view and from the uh, the fact that the society was wiped out so the problem is is that the mainstream society or dominant societies don't even know our history Mm-hmm. And they, they um, there's been a total unwillingness to learn about it, <clears throat> and and um, when you get a situation like the 215 um, uh, bodies or or uh, skeletons that were found in the Kamloops residential school, it, it's really only the tip of the iceberg. There were 139 such schools. Um, Murray Sinclair, the former judge, um, estimated that there are probably between 15 to 25,000, uh, 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 you know, unmarked uh, graves or mass graves throughout the 139 or so um, residential schools. And, um, and it was okay just to ignore all of this. And um, if that if that was your if those were your kids or families, um, it's not okay. No, Calvin, let me continue, let me come back to you on this. Um, so, so, you know, you, you were the first black member of parliament for Whitby, Ontario, successful entrepreneur. And as MP, you became the parliamentary secretary to the prime minister who turned on you when you informed Mr. Trudeau you wouldn't be contesting the 2019 federal election. What is your experience as an African-Canadian in Canada what was your experience as a member of parliament within the context of attempting to positively grow a multiracial 
ethnically and religiously diverse national society? Well, first, I, I do want to, um, you know, really underscore some of the points that Calvin brought up around Canadians not knowing our history. So when you have individuals like myself or Mumalak Kagak going at the end of their term and saying that they were scared, they they there was no security for them on the hill. There was no. Um, there was a feeling of violence um, while on the hill. That is, that is the truth that needs to be reckoned with um, before we can grow or positively grow an institution like the federal parliament. Um, I think one of the things that Canadians really need to understand is that we didn't just get here without a long line of various atrocities that happened to people over hundreds of years to get to a point where we are really disrupting the narrative around, you know, what politicians should look like and who should feel safe. And, you know, you, you talk about positively growing, you know, communities. Myself, Mumalak Gagak, went to Parliament Hill to be a voice for our communities. And what we found was the not only the institution itself um, really not representing us as as people, but the 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 players within that institution further fueling the disenfranch disenfranchisement of a member of parliament. So how do we expect our communities? to come together around our democracy, what even in, inside the institution itself, we are not welcome. I remember we the first welcome. time you said that to me uh, in our first interview, and I actually played it back later on in the evening because I wanted to hear that again, and it was so disturbing, and it's just as disturbing to hear it now and hear it again. I'm going to take a quick break, and then I'm going to come back, and we'll talk to Hussein um, uh, about uh, about being Muslim in Canada. By the way, I introduced him, but I never said hello to you. How are you, Hussein? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks. We've been friends for so long. I just, it just, you know, <laughs> you're there. Obviously, anti-Semitism is on the rise in this country, and I see emails which, frankly, horrify me. Emails. Is Canadian society less accepting of its Jewish community in 2021? And what does the conversation among Canadians have to be about? Look, it's a good question. Firstly, I just want to acknowledge the other um, uh, panelists. I, I, I think everybody's uh, perspective is so critical. And Calvin, I, I appreciated your your vantage point tremendously. I, I think we have to do a lot more. It really brings me to tears, quite honestly, uh, what uh, our First Nations people have gone through and um, are going through. <laughs> it's not over. So, um, you know, I, I want you to understand and know that. And, and everyone else here on the panelists, I think everybody here uh, comes with a perspective and no one's perspective is less or more important. It's just so important for us as Canadians. And so, um, you know, uh, someone is obviously involved in, in combating anti-Semitism. Obviously, the situation has escalated. It's hard for us in the Jewish community to understand or accept or believe because 
Um, you know, the Jewish community has been here for many, many years, over 250 years, um, you know, and you can, you can draw, you know, the first, uh, to the first synagogue. And, and so, um, you know, we've been involved in every sphere of, of life and uh, in, in generosity and uh, in, in helping build this, this country uh, and have gone ourselves through many episodes, um, you know, as uh, the, the St. Louis, of course, uh, which was turned back uh, in the none is, is too many scenarios. So um, we've gone through a lot of that, sadly, uh, in the last, uh, you know, two decades in, in general, anti-Semitism has been going up um and um you know around the world and then in the last month it's just skyrocketed here in canada and um you know what i've repeatedly advocated for is that look we're canadians we have to try to work this out we can't you know we can't live you know the lives of of what's going on over overseas we can certainly advocate for it as i do um but as well together um, we have to find a way to coexist and, and to, to protest and advance causes respectfully. It has to happen. It can't be that, you know, Jewish people are assaulted on the street. I mean, I, you know, I haven't seen that in my entire lifetime. And I grew up in this country. So it's it's just, it's, it's quite unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so we've entered in a new arena where there's greater intolerance in our country. And I'm not just referring to, to the Jewish community. I think we're all feeling it. The Muslim community is, is feeling it. You know, we're all feeling it. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the black community, uh, First Nations, obviously, like we're all feeling it. So what are we going to do about it? How do we live? How do how are we going to live in this beautiful country together? Let me what do are, this. Are, I mean, let me do this because I want to hear from all four of you before we take yeah. the half hour break, and then I just want to turn it over to all of you to discuss with each other. But I before we get to the half hour, let me also ask Hussein Hamdani, uh, being Muslim in Canada, Hussein, is there a palpable presence? of anti-Muslim, anti-Islam in greater Canadian society. When you were on the air with us last weekend, you talked about growing up in Hamilton, playing lacrosse and hockey, and that resonated with a lot of listeners. What's going on? Yeah, well, well look, I, the one thing I think uh, that we all share, all of us, is that uh, as your tagline in your show is, um, proudly Canadian, right? We're all proudly Canadian, and we want the best for, for Canada. I happen to come as a refugee to Canada. I've seen other parts of the world, so... I know how great our country is. But I also mentioned on your show last time I was on, Roy, that that more Muslims have died in Canada for being Muslim than in any other country in the G7. So that, that that's not in proportionate numbers. That's in absolute terms. More Muslims have died in Canada uh, for being Muslims than in the U.S., than in the U.K., than in France. And so we have to stop and say, what's going on? And I think, you know, I, I benefit from hearing from Avi and uh, Selena and Calvin. And one of the things I can point to is when do these atrocities, why do these atrocities happen? You know, two weeks ago, a family got mowed down simply because they're Muslim. Two weeks before then, we discovered 215 um, skeletons of young children of, of the indigenous community in a residential school. A year ago, we were mourning the death of, of George Floyd. It happens when one group of people dehumanize another. When one group of people think that they're better or they're more superior, 
um, than another group, the other group being the other, and that they feel that they can do what they want to that other group. And that's what I think all of us uh, need to come together and work against, that we're all Canadians. We all have uh, a right to live here free uh, in, in prosperity. Okay. And so I look forward to to talking to, with my panelists about how we can move Canada positively forward. So I want to step aside as much as possible and have you talk to each other about what needs to be discussed. So go ahead, Selena. Avi said, like, you know, we are all feeling um, this tension. Uh, Hussein talked about, you know, one group against another. And I think if we're not approaching some of these issues with empathetic courage, meaning we are listening to each other, we are understanding the truth, and we're able to take the courage to engage in activism, to engage in advocacy that is required, we'll be talking about this for 10, for 10 15, 20 years after. You know, when Tina Fontaine uh, was found missing and murdered, I swore I will never forget her because she was missing and murdered at 15. She was the same age as my daughter. You know, Joyce Echewan, dying in a hospital bed because while we're hearing the recordings of racist remarks being said to her. You know, how are we so shocked when we see um, that the the Afzal family is gunned down or that there is a, a shooting at a Quebec mosque or to find 215 children? We shouldn't be shocked because these the, the microaggressions that happened to Joyce Echewan, the, the racist and discriminatory things that we hear on a daily basis that we just turn a blind eye to have macro consequences. And if we do not have the empathetic courage to step in to be each other's keeper, then we are going to continue to have these conversations. And we also have to hold each other to account. After Colton Bushi, uh, the verdict of his murder came down and the prime minister said that he was going to implement a rights framework for Indigenous people, and that didn't happen. Canadians, all Canadians, should have voiced concern about that. And, And when we do not have the courage to do so, things slip through the cracks and we continue to see escalating violence, escalating hatred, escalating, um, tearing apart of our very delicate fabric of this country and our democracy. If I could add, this is Hussein. Um, I I think that there's three pronged effort that we need to all engage in and and not one that's more important than the other, but there's things that A, that the government can do. And we can talk about some of the government things uh, that, that can be done. The second is things that community can do, communities across Canada. And the third is what every individual Canadian can do. Mm-hmm. So I'll start with, uh, with um, the, the second two, and then we can go back to the government for a second. You know, when I think about my community, the Muslim community, what can we do? Well, one of the things that we can do is we can ensure that there's zero tolerance for any type of, of discrimination or hatred for any other group. We got to police that ourselves. And, and every community's got to police that themselves. That if you're in your gatherings with your communities, you got to make sure that there's, there's no anti Indigenous or anti Black or anti Semitic language, or if in other communities, Islamophobic language. So we have to do that. And what can Canadians do? Look, we need to get to know one another. We need to get to see one another as, as humans and as, as equal. And so the next time there's an open house at a Sikh Gurdwara or a Hindu temple 
or a Muslim mosque or a Jewish synagogue. Uh, please attend it. Learn, hear about others. Next time there's an open house at a cultural community center, whether it's the Filipino um, or, or the African-Canadian uh, cultural centers, attend it. Next time there's an open house at a friendship center in the Indigenous community. These are the things that we need to do so that we can get to know one another. And what happens is it's so hard to disenfranchise. It's so hard to dehumanize another person when you get to know them. And you realize they care about their children just like we care about our children. They care about the roof over their head just like we care about the roof. They put their pants on one leg at a time just like we do. And, and I find that that needs to happen. As for the government, with the government, we need to institutionalize the fight against hate. We need to ensure that it's not predicated on a particular politician or a political party in power. We need to put some institutions in place that fight against hate. And, you know, by that, I can mean like our curriculum. For example, I'm very, very critical of the fact that in Ontario, the Catholic school board is funded and, and no other religious community school board is funded. However, at least the Catholics have a course on world cultures and world religion. You know, this idea of learning about other people, at least they have it. The public school system doesn't have it. So that's just some of the examples. We need to toughen our laws on online platforms that post hateful white supremacy propaganda. We need we need to you know sharpen our teeth about stuff like that. So I don't want to hog the mic, but those are sort of the three steps, things that the government can do, things that communities can do, and things that every single Canadian can do. But I, I agree with uh, Hussein uh, tremendously. I mean, I, we should talk later. But, <laughs> um, you know, there's there's a lot of things that we can do. Um, I've spent, you know, most of my career trying to build bridges um, with as many faith groups and, you know, groups as, as, as possible and, um, you know, educating them about uh, both the Jewish community, but also learning um, about their community. And I think that that is exactly the way to go forward, because, you know, when you know somebody, when you break bread with them, when you even travel with them, I've traveled, I've taken lots of people with me uh, on various uh, trips, um, uh, you know, to Auschwitz to show them the consequence of hatred and the universality of hatred. This is what it could lead to. It could actually lead to a genocide. And, and, um, you know, and, and the, you know, the, what I've gotten back is, is 20 fold. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable in terms of that respect. I have to say, I, I don't hold a lot. I don't give a lot of weight to government. Um, I think this is civil society. I think this is people to people. I think that we can accomplish so, so much more when it's people to people and we learn about each other, we respect one another, and we come out with plans on how it is to advance, um, you know, freedom and peace and, and harmony and inclusivity in our communities. Um, and that's um, it just comes from years of, of experience in this in this particular area. Email just arrived from Barry. Thank you for another great show. The more I hear from Selena Caesar Chavan, the more I like. She's terrific. This is a very important program that we're airing. It's very important because we're hearing and we're discussing and we're, I think we're getting some great discussion points, really significantly important discussion points that we all need to get involved in. Um, Calvin, Helene, would you pick up please for us and, and, and share your perspective of what we've talked about so far, please? Sure. Thank you. 
Um, I think in thinking about um, about racism, uh, it's it's uh, we would do well to bear in mind um, the American poet laureate Angela Mayo's comment that uh, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel, and uh, that's a very important idea for for people to try to put themselves in the shoes of the, of, uh, the people that are being subjected to racism. I think there's a really important issue in, in uh, Australia recently. They, uh, one of the universities did a study and they found that there was a, um, 70% of the population had an unconscious bias towards uh, the Aborigines of Australia who in their history were treated just horrendously. And I, I think it, it needs to be recognized that in cultures and in families and in countries, um, there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of racist ideas that just come down to us from our, either our families or the cultures, and they're very racist and they hurt people when you, um, when you uh, verbalize them. And, um, and I know like a lot of people in mainstream society feel a bit confused about all of this because they, they, they're thinking, well, you know, that was my ancestors or what can I do about it? But, but those views are still in, uh, in uh, cultures and societies. And uh, there is no um, statute of limitations on morality. It's, it's incumbent upon us to figure out and uh, and acquire the awareness and knowledge to deal with them. And I'll give you an example. In the U.S., they celebrate Columbus Day, and Indigenous people objected to it. Well, and the response was, well, I mean, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal to Indigenous people is Columbus, first of all, um, enslaved, uh, murdered about 5 million Indigenous people, introduced a disease that wiped out 95% of our population. So if it, uh, it's like proposing to Jewish people, let's have Hitler Day, you know, yay, that, that makes me feel just great. And they're not to blame for it, for you, you shouldn't be responsible for the sins of your ancestors, but you should be responsible for the attitudes you take now. And um, I think it's really important to um, understand that and for people to think about it because I think it's really an, an individual thing that uh, that we have to do something about ourselves. May um, I ask may I ask this question? We have about three minutes left here. Do you find that most people, most people you come across, regardless of who they are, where they're from, what they what you preconceived notions we all may have when we meet someone. Do you know, do you find that most people are people of goodwill? Yeah, no? I, I think most people don't intend, they don't, they don't think what they're saying is, um, is racist and, um, or, or could hurt you. Um, you know, like people refer to indigenous people as redskins. Well, that, that word came from uh, a bounty on, on Indigenous people in one of the U.S. states where I think they received about $200 for an Indian scalp. 
the notion of um, Indian givers comes from the uh, the uh, West Coast or East Coast uh, um, settlers misunderstanding that when they were given something by Indigenous people from those tribes there, it was the, a trade was expected, uh, and um, and so now that idea that Indigenous people are uh, dishonorable, untrustworthy, is casually put into uh, schoolyards and stuff, where, where you know where kids call call the native kids Indian givers and so on. And it's a first of all, it's wrong, and it comes from just one tribe, and it comes from a misunderstanding of the settlers. And um, so when you you're basically insulting, um, you know, you're you're insulting everyone's ancestors and it's insulting to be uh, said that you're a dishonorable chief. Um, so I, I think there's something that can be done. And, uh, and I, I think we just need to uh, examine a lot of the ideas uh, in society. And, and part of the problem is that uh, indigenous history has been told mostly by Europeans. So this is where a lot of these ideas come from. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Europeans that came here were interested in gold, God, and glory. They weren't interested in the people. And, Calvin, um, I, 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 so, only, I only have two minutes here, so I'd like to just ask that question to everyone else on the panel. Uh, do you find, because we, I hope we can find among ourselves, as uh, all of us as Canadians, that there is a, a general, a real genuine interest in moving forward positively. So, Selena, do you find that most people are people of goodwill if you if you let them get to it? For sure, for sure. But let me tell you the pro the problem with goodwill by itself: goodwill, good intentions, your heart in the right place, prayers and thoughts are not actions that could help change the way our society gets towards equity. We heard about breaking bread together. That's an act. You have to do something in order to change the landscape. The good intention and the goodwill, yes, it's a start, but it's not what's going to eventually change our society for the better. We need better actions-oriented change. Avi? Yeah, look, I mean, I think people are of goodwill. Uh, the problem, and, you know, I have to, you know, step out a little bit here and say, and say that the problem is that our society is very polarized. People are very entrenched in their positions, and they may think they be, they, they're acting in goodwill or that they're, you know, human rights oriented, when in fact they may, their actions may be offending someone else. And, and um, you know, we, I've seen that uh, play over and over where we just can't change the narrative because that narrative is just so strong, even though, you know, in my case, the Jewish community feels like it's victimized. And so I, I'm very concerned about that polarization and entrenchment, and, and, and we need to rethink that kind of approach. Okay, I'm just watching the clock here now. Yeah. Hussein, final thoughts to you. Yeah, well, look, I, I, my community is mourning the death of four family members by white supremacists, uh, by white supremacists. So, yeah, people are of goodwill, but we need white people to be allies in this. They, people are killing in your name. So I agree with Selena. Action is necessary, not just goodwill. Alberta reached a specific and important milestone as far as vaccination numbers are concerned, which will help lead toward the July 1st opening of the province, which the Premier has announced. Premier Kenny, thank you for the time. Tell us about that milestone you reached. 
Well, thanks to about 2.7 million Albertans getting the jab, we've stuck it to COVID in a real way, uh, surpassing our key 70% threshold of those who've had uh, at least a first dose um, amongst the eligible population. Those are Albertans 12 and above. And uh, so with that, we have a two-week lag, of course, until the full uh, protective power of those vaccines uh, come into force. That means Canada Day, July the 1st, we will be open for summer and open for good. The first province in Canada that is fully open, we're dropping all public health restrictions, except for a few that relate to uh, long-term care uh, and hospitals for vulnerable seniors. So it's great news. And uh, today we'll be reporting our lowest COVID numbers in Alberta since uh, August of last year. Uh, Things are really going in the right direction. And I just want to say thank you to Albertans for uh, rising to the call. So there, there was Epsos polling for Global News, and uh, there are significant numbers of Canadians who, uh, who would not want to be vaccinated or are not sure they want to be vaccinated, who might, in fact, be persuaded by a lottery such as the one you announced for the province of Alberta and a similar um, lottery that's being with less money involved because Manitoba doesn't have as much money as Alberta, of course. I know that's a, yeah, bad, that's a bad joke. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> but but talk to us about the, the the lottery and the response to it, and and why you initiated this. Yeah. Well, Roy, we, we um, our polling indicates that about 85 percent of Albertans are open to or willing to get vaccinated. Uh, there's about 10 to 15 percent who are. About 10% hardcore won't get vaccinated, and, and there's no persuading those folks. Another few percent who are disinclined, and they're probably going to be the latecomers when, it, when they are able finally to accept the safety of the vaccines. But between the 70% we're at now and the um, 80 uh, and 85 who are open to getting it, there's about a 15-point gap in our population that haven't yet got the vaccines, but we think are open to it. And so those are just the latecomers. Those are folks who, well, for one reason or another, uh, they're just super busy, has, they haven't gotten around to it yet, maybe, um, or maybe they're, I think a lot of them are younger guys in particular who, um, you know, healthy, and they, they kind of tend to think they're uh, um, immortal a little bit. And so it's just not personal health stuff like this maybe isn't their top priority. So for some of those folks, we're just making giving them an extra reason uh, to hurry up and get the jab. And that's why uh, a couple of weeks back, we rolled out the Open for Summer Lottery, um, three $1 million prizes. We've also added a bunch of fun uh, travel uh, packages from WestJet and Air Canada. And today I'm announcing uh, 635 prizes from the Calgary Stampede, free admission and, and rides and a bunch of other stuff. So we're going to keep, and we have a fun one coming up. We haven't announced it yet, but it's going to be a, a special draw uh, for uh, hunters and fishermen, people will just stay tuned for the details. But it's going to be uh, very much for the, those folks who who like uh, the outdoors and, and things like hunting and fishing. We're going after every bit, everyone in the population who's open to the vaccine hasn't got it yet. And by the way, since we launched launched the lottery, we saw inst- we have been experiencing a decline in first dose demand. But from that date, we saw a very noticeable spike up so it seems to have worked yeah that's that's good news and uh you know we public health officials are telling us we should make sure that we're all double vaccinated as quickly as we possibly can or at least have one shot as quickly as possible because there's concern about this delta variant how does that delta variant if it does fit into the opening date for july 1st for alberta 
Well, we've taken all of that into account, and the, the, the science is clear that the vaccines uh, uh, com- are hugely powerful against all of the known variants, including Delta, also known as the B1617 or Indian variant. Um, in fact, there was a study done by Public Health England. Of course, in- Britain has had um, some Delta variant outbreaks in the last few weeks. But what was unique about Britain is couple of things. Uh, they had done no vaccination uh, amongst people under the age of 30 until quite recently. So there was a, you know, millions of, of, of Britons between 12 and, and 30 years of age who had no protection. And that meant that, that in some areas, um, the Delta variant started to spread very quickly in that segment of the population. We're pretty healthy, obviously. Um, but they've done a lot of research. And the, come, the takeaway is this, that the uh, the, the mRNA vaccines are 94% protective on the first dose against hospitalization for the Delta variant and 96% protective against hospitalization on the second dose. Um, and, and AstraZeneca, the protection levels are a little bit lower, but they're still very, very strong. So the, the solution to the Delta variant is just getting more people vaccinated. I can tell you here in Alberta, Half of our cases are in one fairly small area of Calgary where we've got 76% of people vaccinated. So we're going to keep an eye on it. Um, but what, And one thing people have to get used to, Roy, because I do hear a lot of, you know, there are some voices out there in the debate who are seem almost to be promoting fear, uh, almost to the point of hysteria every time we get a new variant. Um, look, we have to get used to the fact that there will constantly be an evolution of this disease in new variants. The most contagious variants will become the dominant strains over time. COVID will continue to circulate. Some people will get sick. Some people will get hospitalized and some people will pass away. But right now we are at a lower level of daily deaths from COVID than we typically are from the conventional flu. We have to learn to manage this and live with it much like we do uh, the conventional flu influenza. I agree. It's it's endemic. It's going to be around for a long time and we do have to manage it. Premier, if I could just get you, because I know you've tweeted on this, could I just get you to comment quickly on the, uh, the the two Senate seats for the province of Alberta, and you have a message for the Prime Minister on that. Yeah, so a lot of folks outside of Alberta may not realize, Roy, that we have a pretty strong tradition of holding, believe it or not, Senate elections in Alberta. And we've actually had a bunch of, of our elected senators appointed to Canada's Senate. This started way back in the 80s. Um, when Prime Minister Mulroney appointed uh, Alberta's first elected senator. We've always been advocates of Senate democracy out here and uh, wanting a stronger voice for the regions and provinces in the Canadian Parliament, uh, much like every other democratic federation, the UK, um, Australia, Germany, etc. And and so we've been pushing hard for 40 years out of Alberta for a more powerful and uh, democratic Senate. Um, our government has kept a campaign commitment to bring back Senate elections. We'll be holding them this October the 18th. And uh, now the thing is, we have two of our six Senate seats are currently vacant and have been for about six months. Uh, one of the, our previous senators uh, sadly passed away, another resigned. And we're just asking, we passed a motion through Alberta's legislature this past week, asking the Prime Minister to please keep those vacancies open so that he can then appoint the folks chosen by Albertans rather than a hand-picked federal candidate. We want Alberta voters, as we've done in the past several times, 
to choose who will represent them in the upper chamber. And, and we think it would be an insult to Alberta voters and the principle of democracy for the prime minister to ignore our democratic tradition in this province of choosing our own senators. I absolutely concur. The provinces should make the decisions. But when it comes to Alberta, even on the 150th birthday of uh, this country, I think it was the 150th birthday, Mr. Trudeau forgot for some reason. You, you remember that, eh? I do remember that. And I don't think it was an accident either, Premier. So just a point. Well, Roy, as I've said on your show before, um, Albertans are, I believe, proud Canadians. And boy, we're going to have a great Canada Day party this summer with um, the open, for, uh, the day we lift all public health restrictions. And we're proud to have just been a big part of building modern Canada. So many Canadians from coast to coast have come here for new beginnings and, and, and to enjoy opportunity. And we've shared uh, like $620 billion net contribution to the rest of the country. So we played an oversized role. And all we ask is for a bit of respect. And I don't think it's too much to ask that one province that chooses to elect its own senators should have those choices respected. Particularly since Quebec, uh, 281 members of the federal government, uh, members of parliament, just agreed with the Bloc Quebecois that Quebec should be have the right to be declared a nation and have the right to arbitrarily amend the Constitution. But we don't have time to get into that for here. I want to tell you about a book. And then I want to talk to the man responsible for the book. The book is uh, titled The 40 Ways of Fox. Clever is good. It's a compilation of personal and professional experiences by one of Canada's most successful business entrepreneurs, and sports figures. He's also my great personal friend of many years from whom I've learned many valuable lessons. He is Ron Foxcroft, Order of Canada inductee, honorary colonel in the Canadian Armed Forces in multiple occasions, chairman of Fox 40 Industries, which is centered on the world-renowned Fox 40 whistle used by officials in the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, the CFL, NCAA, World Cup of Soccer, the Olympic Games, and more. Ron Foxcroft is a 23-year NCAA Division I basketball referee who also refereed the 1976 Montreal Olympic Games basketball gold medal game. He's been inducted into multiple sports halls of fame, including the Canadian Basketball Hall of Fame, was named as one of the top 50 sports officials of all time by Referee Magazine. And all proceeds of this book will go to charities which my friend Ron Foxcroft is going to tell us about the 40 ways of the fox. So, Ron, I've read the book cover to cover. It's filled with great stories, anecdotes, sports and business experiences of yours. And each one teaches a lesson on how to succeed and maximize life. And they only take a few minutes to to uh, to read. What's the story behind this? Why'd you do it? Well, uh, Roy, you know, that's exactly the reason I wrote the book is, as you said, you've, you've read uh, about my experiences. Our uh, business is, is very diverse. Uh, fluke transport with the famous slogan, if it arrives on time, it's a fluke. Uh, you know, we're, we're involved in trucking, warehousing, logistics, and so on and so on. Fox 40 is a vast uh, enterprise that uh, we, uh, we do business in 140 countries. And um, uh, your listeners may not realize, but uh, I've been in the airport business as chairman of John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport for the last 18 years, and we are the largest overnight express airport in Canada. So, Roy, um, I don't have a gatekeeper, and when you call our company and ask for Ron, you get Ron. (laughs) 
and I get many uh, communications, many phone calls, many emails, etc., and so on. And it's usually from entrepreneurs, inventors, or business owners, small business owners, sometimes medium business owners. Ron, could I talk to you? I've got this problem. What's the path for success? And, and you know, Roy, like you and everybody else, business and life is too busy. And I just feel terrible saying to some of these people, you know, I, I really haven't got time to deal with this. I haven't got time to meet with you. So having said that, um, I, I met and I've known a, a very, very distinguished uh, writer in Mike Ulmer. He came into my office one day, and I've been thinking about a book, as you very well know, for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to dedicate the time involved in the book. And Mike Ulmer came in one day. I've known him for three-plus decades, and he's, he said he did a bait-and-switch. He said, uh, you need to do a book, and I've done 85% of the research. And that was the, that was the answer. That was the <laughs> answer I was looking for. And Roy also, too. Uh, this isn't about profile. This isn't about profit. This is about doing some good for entrepreneurs, students, anybody that wants to uh, enter the adventurous uh, life of being in the business world. But it was also about helping two charities that are very near and dear to me, uh, Liberty for Youth and City Kids, who do great work in our community. So uh, let's get at it here. And, uh, I mean, I know a lot of these stories from having known you for more than 30 years. And you've provided me with a lot of sound advice that has helped me through life. But negotiation, Mr. Foxcroft, came very early to you. You negotiated your way out of, listen to this, folks, because we all wanted to, but none of us did, except him. You negotiated your way out of high school. I did, Roy. I, I'm really not that proud of it. But I, Well, I it's in your you, book, so tell us. You know, uh, we don't do a very good job celebrating entrepreneurs and business people in Canada. Right. And you know what? There's this uh, perception out there with some people that you have to have a tremendous education, which I, I concur. You know, I, I think education... Not necessarily in the classroom. I got mine down on the street. So I found school very, very boring. And one day I got caught selling the answer to the detention question by the principal. And, Roy, I was doing pretty good. I split the proceeds. The the janitor showed me where the uh, answer to the detention was, and I went out and sold it to all my buddies. And I was pulling in some cash money, split 50-50 with the janitor who got me the answer. Well, you know, the principal was uh, underwhelmed with my uh, entrepreneurial spirit, called me into the office, and I said, Mr. Walden, I know I'm a problem, and you don't really want me here, and I don't want to be here, so just give me 50 on everything, and I'm out of here. And that was the last time I ever spent any time in the classroom. But, Roy... Fifty years later, almost to the day, I went back to Waterdown High School. The principal, Michelle Visca, introduced me as one of the most outstanding graduates that ever attended Waterdown High School. And I had to um, politely interrupt her and say, Madam Principal, I'm not a graduate. I was an attendee. So, Roy, 50 years after I 
negotiated my way out of high school. I spoke to the graduation class, and the principal, Michelle Visca, gave me my high school graduation diploma 50 years after I left. I've heard you speak, and your speeches are so inspiring, and they show the way to entrepreneurs. They guide people, and that's what you're doing in the book. I should tell everybody as well that Ron is also uh, has been named the Entrepreneur of the Year in this country more than once. The, the book's divided into sections. Think like a fox, work like a fox, how to train like a fox. Let's start with the first one. Think like a fox. What's the story that immediately comes to mind to you and the lesson it teaches from Think Like a Fox? You know what? You think like a fox, and you know what that means, Roy? You have to be a good listener. You have to have a mentor and a coach. And the other thing is I learned early, you have to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you and create an environment for them to succeed. Now, I'm not the brightest guy in my company. I'm the least important guy in my company, but I've surrounded myself with teammates and family that are smarter than me at what they do. The greatest lesson these people can learn from this book, first of all, get a mentor, get a coach, surround yourself with people smarter than you, and be a good listener. In my case, I'm not a very good writer. But I am a very good listener, and I like to deal with facts. Mike Almer steps in. Whoa, he's a great writer. He's a terrific writer. And, you know, we, we formed a great teamwork. I, I uh, relate to him some of our adventures. Also, too, Roy, I think I led Canada in making mistakes. And mistakes are not mistakes if you turn around and do a pivot and use them as a learning experience. And in all my adventures in trucking, warehousing, logistics, in officiating, in, in search and rescue, and all the businesses we're involved in, airport management, I've been a good listener, made a lot of mistakes, but pivoted very quickly and took those mistakes they became a learning experience, and also I had to focus on being a great listener. Yeah, you are, except when you're on the golf course. Except when I'm on the golf course. You're not a good listener, then. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You're so, not, also you know, not, Roy, you're not very empathetic, either, on the golf course. <laughs> there's no fiction in this book. I've no. lived everything. Okay, everything so. Everything stated, I've lived it. Let me shoot this one at you. If it ain't broke break it. If it's not broke, break it. What's the message there? Oh, boy. You know, I would walk down the hall and say to uh, someone in the office, why are you doing it that way? And they would turn, and this this is a, a bad thing. They would turn and say, well, I've been doing it that way for the last 15 years. Well, have you you got to ask the question. You got to ask the right questions, Roy. And no, normally when I ask a question, I already know what the answer should be. And so I would ask the question if they've been doing it the same way for the last 15 years, I ask a very serious question. Do you think there's a better way to do it? Do you think there's a more innovative way to do it? Do you think you can find a better way to be uh, more successful in this task. It gets them thinking. And, Roy, what I'm, I'm uh, referring to here, just because 
you've been doing it the same way for the 15, last 15 years doesn't necessarily mean you can't do it better. The other thing that, that I really believe in, Roy, is if you don't set out to be the best in the world at what you do, then get out. Because you may not become the best in the world. Like, you know, out on the golf course, we work hard on our game. We may not be as good as Phil Mickelson. But the journey of trying to be the best in the world is the fun of being in business. Try and be the best in the world at producing a product or producing a service and enjoy the journey and learn from that journey. Why is 5149 a bad deal? Roy, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm a, a, a true believer in, in pure partnerships. When you're doing business with a vendor or a client, it has to be a pure partnership. Now, Roy, if you and I go out and, and you know, we're doing a, a deal and we both have to come away uh, feeling good about that deal. I don't think there's, there's such a thing as a perfect deal, but we have to both sides have to feel good about the deal. When I do a, a, a deal, I like to sit on my side of the table, pick myself up, walk around to the other side of the table, and see how they look at the deal. Now, if I win that deal and take an advantage, 51-49, during, and, and come away feeling, wow, I really took them on that, and I really won that deal. You know, during the lifetime of that deal, they're going to think of a strategy to get out of that contract, Roy. So I think you have to come away from a, a contract feeling uh, that you have won, they have won, you have been slightly bruised, they have been slightly bruised. And it's no different than going out on the golf course. And uh, we go out on the golf course, Roy, you and I are partners, and the two guys we're playing are sandbaggers. And they come to the golf course with a fictitious golf handicap. That's a bad deal. That's a 51-49. We're at a 49, Roy, and we are going to be more vigorous to beat them because it's not a fair deal. A fair deal has to be, by definition, a good partnership where both people feel very good, both people feel maybe slightly bruised to the same degree. Well, I've always appreciated our golf partnership because you said to me many times, all you have to do is win one hole. All you have to do, <laughs> and I didn't. I don't think I did that on Monday. Anyway, <laughs> no. uh, look, don't bet your family. What are yeah. you telling us? Uh, I'm telling you. You know what? Um, I did Fox Forty. I I took a real big advantage, Roy. I was three months behind on my rental car payment at the time, and um, and and when we started to sell whistles and of course now we sell 15,000 whistles a day in 140 countries around the world it wasn't always that easy i had borrowed $150,000 being behind on a car payment but i had decided then and there i'm not going to put my family at risk so to this day roy i've kept my day job at fluke transport i still go in every day kept my day job at fluke transport just in case things don't work out with this crazy idea of a peeless whistle, I'm not putting my family at risk. 
How many do you sell a day again? 15,000 whistles in 140 countries for search, rescue, safety, sport, military. Uh, um, you might say just about any time, any use anywhere in the world, they need a whistle, in particular this time of the year, for marine safety. Yeah. I, I remember in that terrible Oklahoma City bombing. Yes. And we broadcast uh, on that for a number of days. The governor of Oklahoma sent a plane yep. to Hamilton yep. to get Fox 40 whistles because it was the only whistle that could penetrate the, the concrete walls and the, and, yep. the, and the first responders could, could hear each other, communicate with each other that That's way. right. The yeah. governor uh, took, I believe, uh, one of the courier planes and, yeah. and sent it to to our manufacturing facility so the search and rescue workers could be heard through the concrete rubble. So where can the book be obtained? Uh, Roy, at uh, fox40shop.com. 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 Yes. And and Roy, I really want to stress, it goes to two amazing charities, Liberty for Youth and City Kids. The Ways of the Fox, The 40 Ways of the Fox, Clever is Good by Ron Fox, with Mike Oliver, fox40shop.com. And thanks for putting me in your book, too. Thank you, Roy. You're in my Hall of Fame, and deservedly so. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.